want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, if you don't have your Bible or you uh, uh, need one, feel free to grab one of the pew Bibles and turn to page 906. Page 906. In his remaining moments on the cross, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, did not preach a sermon, did he? In fact, it's interesting because as Jesus hung on the cross, especially in the remaining moments, he spoke only a few words. In John chapter 19, we learn that he uttered uh, this short statement. He said, I thirst. The next verse says that a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it to his mouth. And the word of God continues, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The Lord Jesus Christ died. The narrative continues, and we learn, and we all know very well, that Jesus' side is is pierced with a sword and blood and water flowed. Jesus is then buried, and you'll remember that Joseph of Arimathea, a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, he went to, to Pilate's quarters, and he asked permission to take the body. And, of course, permission was granted. And then Nicodemus came. You remember Nicodemus earlier in the Gospel of John. He came, and this is hard for me to imagine, but he came lugging a 75-pound mixture of myrrh and aloes. And so Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they took the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. They bound it in linen cloths with the spices, all 75 pounds worth, which was, of course, the custom of the Jews. Now, if you have your Bibles open to John chapter 20, look for a moment at the chapter preceding it in John chapter 19. And look at the final verses of John 19, verses 41 and 42. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, the stone was secured at the entrance of the tomb, and we're going to look at the the details of what that involved here in a moment. But I want you to imagine with me, and I want you to to truly put on your imagination caps and and get into the, the skin of Jesus' friends and Jesus' disciples. I want you to imagine that you had walked with Jesus, that you had talked with Jesus, that you had dined with Jesus, that you had joked around with Jesus. You had spent time with Him. You had seen Him perform miracles. You love Him. He's your friend. And now He's dead. I want you to imagine the the crisis of faith that occurred in the disciples of Jesus and the friends of Jesus as he breathed his last, the friend whom they loved so very dearly was dead. Their hopes were dashed. Their dreams were crushed. The one who had turned the water into wine, gone. The one who had fed the 5,000, he's gone. The one who walked on the water was gone. The one who called himself the bread of life and the light of the world was now dead. The one who healed the blind man. The one who raised Lazarus from the dead was now gone. The one who claimed, and this is a a great mystery, the one who claimed to be the resurrection and the life, dead. And surely the friends of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, experienced a crisis of faith. Are you feeling the story with me? Are you jumping into the narrative? And if you're like me and if you're like the the early disciples and friends of Jesus, you would have likely asked questions like, Why did he have to die? Why didn't he just call an angelic host to save him? Why didn't he just call one angel to save him? Why didn't he strike down his enemies? We know he had the power to do it. I think if I were standing at the tomb of Jesus, I would have said, Jesus, why? 
Why? All of us, I think, can relate to this crisis of faith that no doubt occurred in the lives of Jesus' friends and his disciples. You feel the sting of betrayal in your life. We talked about this a bit on Good Friday as we celebrated together just a a few days ago. As we thought briefly about the, the betrayal of Judas, the one who spent time with Jesus, the one who ate dinner with Jesus, the one who saw Jesus engage in ministry, the one who helped Jesus in his ministry, yet he betrayed him with a kiss. And then, of course, we learn that moments later, the apostle Peter betrayed Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. And if you're like me, you can understand the, the horror, the, the sting of betrayal. Perhaps you're here this morning and you feel the sting of hopelessness in your life. You have lost someone precious to you. You have lost someone special. You feel the pain of loss in your life. You, you feel the, the sting of whatever it is that, that, that rocks you to the very core. Nothing seems to add up. Nothing seems to make sense anymore. And this is exactly where we pick up in John chapter 20, where the friends of Jesus and the disciples of Jesus are in this sort of, of spiritual no man's land, wondering how to pick up the pieces. I want to invite you to stand with me as we read our passage in John chapter 20, verses 1 to 10. And as we read, remember, this is the word of God. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. And so Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter, and he reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Let's pray. Father, what a a joy it is to come together and and celebrate the resurrection of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the great hope that we have that we will learn more of this morning. We thank you for the peace and the joy and the, the, the assurance that one day... Everyone who is in Christ will will be together, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we will feast for all eternity. No more sin, no more pain, no more sorrow, all because of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we delight in Him, we delight in His work, His life, His ministry, and all that He accomplished on the cross for our sins. God, I pray that you would awaken us this morning. I pray that you would awaken afresh believers. I pray that you would awaken someone for the first time today. Perhaps someone who has come, who has never come to the point of of seeing and believing the Lord Jesus Christ. And so may your work of grace, your good work of grace, continue here in this place today. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The title of the message this morning is The Dawning of the Resurrection. And I want to ask this very basic question, namely, how did the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ affect the friends and disciples of Jesus? And also, how can the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead impact you? 
There are two things in particular that I want you to see in the lives of these individuals who gathered around the tomb of Jesus. There are two specific things that take place in this story that have, have intimate bearing on their lives and on your lives as well. First, I want you to see their, their transfixed eyes. Their transfixed eyes. Now, to have eyes that are transfixed suggests that someone is captivated or fascinated or absorbed by something or someone. It was a few years ago. My son Nathan and I, I believe we were on our way to a Mariners game. And I was... I was Beginning to think about Nathan would be driving uh, sometime soon, and I was kind of trying to teach him the rules of the road, if you, if it were, as it were. And uh, one of the things I wanted to teach him is what a rubbernecker was. You all do know what a rubbernecker is. Maybe some of you don't. A rubbernecker is one of those drivers that's always ahead of you. They're never behind you, and they're driving down the road, and they they see a, a state trooper has pulled someone over, or there's an accident, or there's, a, in my estimation, a speck of dust on the side of the road, right? Anything will stop a rubber. And what do they do? They go from driving 65 to 35. Why? Because they have rubber in their necks, and they do this. They turn, and it makes them drive really slow. So now, when Nathan and I are on driving down the road, especially on the freeway, uh, one of the things we love to joke about is, that's the rubberneckers, right? It's the rubberneckers. Why? They're transfixed on something. They see something that they're interested in. They're captivated by something. That is exactly what happens here at the tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a, a, a few people whose eyes are transfixed. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, this is Sunday, came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And they mark this word, if you would, in your Bible. And if you're using one of the pew Bibles, just mark it. We don't care. They saw, that's the word, saw, S-A-W, that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. What are their eyes transfixed upon? There are three things here. First, I want you to see that their, their eyes are, are gazed upon the gravestone. Their eyes are gazed upon the gravestone. After Jesus was crucified, Mary Magdalene, and as the scripture says in a few places, and the other Mary, saw, there's that word again I want to draw your attention to, they saw the great stone which was rolled in front of the entrance of the tomb. The word translated stone. You tend to think in, in American culture, stone, oh, that's like a stone that you, you, you throw across the way. That's not the word here. The word stone comes from the Greek word lithos, which means this. It means a rock of mass or hard, consolidated mineral matter. That's the definition from the Greek lexicon, and it probably doesn't mean an awful lot to you. This is my definition. Are you ready? This is really worth writing down. The stone that is rolled in front of the tomb of Jesus, the lithos, are you ready? is a cotton-picking big rock. That's what it is. This is a massive boulder. This stone, you might say, is large and in charge. And so Mary Magdalene saw with her own eyes as Joseph of Arimathea carefully wedged this massive lithos, this massive stone in front of the tomb of Jesus. Now the next day, the tomb is fortified by the chief priests. And we can see that if you'd hold your finger in John chapter 20 and go back with me to the first gospel of Matthew. And I want you to look with me just for a moment at Matthew chapter 27, verse 62. Matthew 27, verse 62. And what we have here, we have a group of, of nervous cats... We have a group of nervous officials 
who are very suspicious that something might take place. Look at verse 62 of Matthew 27. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together before Pilate, and they said, Houston, we have a problem. They said, Sir... We remember that that imposter, namely Jesus, he said, while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. This is why these guys are referred to, in my estimation, as nervous cats. Because they heard, likely on more than one occasion, Jesus said, you kill me, and in three days... I will rise. Go back a few pages to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, and look for a moment with me at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed on the third day and what? And be raised. And so it was not only the religious officials and the Pharisees and the the scribes and the chief priests who heard that Jesus promised that one day he would die and be raised. But remember this, the disciples, they heard it from the very lips of Jesus that he would die and that he would be raised. And so in Matthew chapter 27... The the passage we just looked at a moment ago, we find a group of very nervous men who will do anything and everything to prevent that from taking place. You want to try to raise from the dead, Jesus? Hit me with your best shot, right? Go ahead, make my day. Now look back in Matthew chapter 27. In Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 64. And there's something I want to draw your attention to here that I find fascinating. We find in verses 64 to 66, we find the word secure. Secure is utilized three times. Now, the word secure comes from a Greek word that means to secure beyond a shadow of a doubt. It means to fasten. It means to fortify. In fact, you don't need to turn there. Let me, let me just read it for you. In Acts chapter 16, verse 24, we find the Greek word translated fastened or secured actually emerging in the book of Acts. And this is the scene where Paul and Silas are thrown in prison and the, the, the police of the day throw on the cuffs. And here's the way verse 24 reads. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison, that is Paul and Silas, and fastened their feet in stocks. Where are they going? They're going nowhere, at least for the time being. Why? Because their feet are fastened. That's the same word that we see emerging in Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 64. And so the same word that is found in Acts 16 emerges three times in these three verses. The chief priests and the Pharisees had complete assurance that Jesus would remain in the tomb. Why? Because the stone was rolled. You remember the cotton-picking big rock? The stone was rolled in front of the tomb. And in addition to the stone, we see that the guard was posted outside the tomb that made this a reality for these men. Verse 62, The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposture said, While he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made what? Secure. Fasten it up. Until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. What are they accusing the disciples of here? They're in this this game with the Lord Jesus Christ that Jesus promised he would raise from the dead. The disciples would cook up a scheme and steal the body and say, there it is. It all came to pass. Verse 65, Pilate said of them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. 
So they went and they made the tomb, here's the third rendition of secure. They made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. That brings us to John chapter 20, verse 1, where Mary Magdalene saw that the stone had been rolled away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the tomb early on Sunday morning, as we had seen, and they got the shock of their lives. Indeed, their eyes were transfixed. This is the ultimate rubbernecker. Their eyes were transfixed as they gazed upon the stone that had been rolled away. I imagine these women with mouths on the floor. What in the world? The initial reaction of Mary Magdalene, and we need to think through this. Her initial reaction is one that I believe we can all relate to. When she saw that the stone had been rolled away, her first reaction was, Rats! You see that in your Bible? Rats! Someone has stole the body. That is, the resurrection was the furthest thing on her mind. It was the furthest thing from entering her brain. She thought someone had stolen the body. So what does she do? Mary Magdalene runs as fast as she can to tell Simon, the, Simon Peter and John, by the way, the other disciple whom Jesus loved, to tell them the tragic news. And so they gaze upon the gravestone. There's a second way their eyes are transfixed, and that is that they gazed upon the grave clothes. As she reaches Peter and John, Peter and John, they went out with the other disciple and they were going to the tomb. Verse 4, they were running together. Imagine this scene. These disciples, those who, who love Jesus, their good friend has died. And now they think someone has stolen the body. We've got to get to the tomb and figure this out. And so they bolt. They run together. And just, just just imagine these guys, likely in some kind of robe garb, some Middle Eastern garb, and they're booking, right? And you got to love John. He's like, I'm going to beat old, old Petros. I'm going to beat Rocky, right? <laughs> Remember Jesus called Peter Rocky? <laughs> and so they're, they're booking to the tomb. They're having this race, and John beats him there. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping down, this is John now, stooping down, he, what's that next word? Saw. Would you highlight that word in your Bible? He saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. This is John. He beats Peter to the tomb, right? He, he leans down, he looks in, and he says to himself, Oh my word. He's looking. And then Peter shows up behind him. They gaze at the linen cloths lying there. And Simon Peter went into the tomb, verses 6 and 7 say, he came following him and he went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And so Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they gaze upon the tomb, the rock that had been rolled away. Now Peter and John, they gaze upon the grave clothes. Their eyes are transfixed. They are the ultimate rubberneckers. And then notice something else that happens, is they gaze upon the empty tomb. John and Peter enter the tomb, and they see that the Messiah is gone. Now, I want you to think once again, put on your imagination caps. I want you to imagine what it would have been like to, to run to the tomb, to have John the Apostle kneel down and look in. His mouth hits the floor. Then Peter comes behind him. They both walk in and they see that Jesus is gone. And it's not like someone had come and stolen the body. If someone had stolen the body, if, you, if you've ever had someone break into your house, think about that. It's happened to me a few times. What happens? They leave the place a mess. They don't fold up the clothes and lay it on your bed and leave a thank you note, right? 
And that's what's happening here is they, they see, it's not in disarray. Rather, they see the linen cloths folded up nicely, just the way God would do it. And they see that the Savior is gone. And there must have been a wide range of emotions. First, remember, Jesus had been unjustly accused. Then he had been, he stood trial and he was unjustly accused and he was flogged and he was beaten. He was spit upon. The crown of thorns was was jammed onto his head, causing his scalp to bleed profusely. The nails were pounded into his flesh. He hung on the cross. He was buried in this tomb. And now he's gone. His body is missing. Now there's something that takes place in our story that we will soon see has life-changing implications. We have seen the transfixed eyes of Jesus' friends and disciples. But now I want you to turn your attention to the transformed hearts. They're transformed hearts. And I like to label this section, Seeing and Believing. And we'll look at the reason for that in a moment. But remember that John had originally stooped down to look in and he witnessed the claws lying there. But the word saw in verse 5 and also the word saw in verse 2 simply means to, to gaze upon or to discern. And I believe that's important. Now we find these men actually entering the tomb. And as they enter, as they walk into the tomb, as they step in, I believe something deep and spiritual is happening within their hearts. Look at verse 8. Then the other disciple, that is John, who reached the tomb first, also went in. And notice what happens. He, what's that word? Saw... And believed. It's an interesting thing. Is when John writes this text, he uses a different Greek word for saw here. It's an entirely different word for saw. Here the word saw comes from a word that means to pay attention, to understand, to experience. It's one thing to say, I I see something. It's quite another to see it and to have it affect your heart. It's a totally different proposition. He not only understood and experienced the reality of the resurrection, but something else deep happened. We'll look at that in a moment. I remember hearing stories as a child and as a as a high school student and even as a college student about the Holocaust in Germany and the Holocaust in Poland. And some of you may even be familiar with the Holocaust that occurred in Belarus. And if I asked any of you, do you believe it happened? I, I, I certainly hope you would say, yes, I believe it happened. We know that there is a, a fraction, a, a minority of the population that says, oh, no, it never happened. My only response to that is wake up and smell the coffee, right? It happened. Six million terminated in Germany. 60 million terminated in the Soviet Union by Joseph Stalin. We know the history books teach us as such, but I had never experienced it firsthand. I saw with my eyes, I gazed upon the history books. I gazed upon uh, some of the movies that have taken place over the years. I knew it happened. But in the moment that I went to Katyn, outside the city of Minsk, Belarus, something totally different happened with me. I not only saw it, I believed it. Why? Because I saw the grave markers. I heard the bell on the hour. Gong! Gong! And right now, as I speak, the hair on my arms... Or standing on end. Why? Because I, only in a minuscule amount, I experienced what happened there in 1940 as Joseph Stalin had over 27,000 Polish people executed. I stood on the ground, and I have said in previous conversations with people, you can smell the death. It is a horrible, horrible place. And so it's one thing to see it, but it's quite another thing to embrace it 
in your hearts. And I think that's exactly what's happening here in the tomb. As John and Peter, they gaze upon the empty tomb. They see it. But verse 8 also tells us something very interesting. And they believed. They see with their eyes. They believe in their hearts. Now look with me for a moment at verse 8. The Bible tells us that they saw and believed. That word believed, I believe, is absolutely crucial in this passage. It's a word that means to think to be true. It's a word that means to trust. It's a word that means to have Christian faith. They see it with their eyes. They believe in their hearts. That is to say, they bank all their hope and future exclusively on the risen Savior. Jonathan Edwards has an example. And it's probably one of the most simple teaching examples I've ever heard Jonathan Edwards use. And instead of quoting directly with with the long sentences that he was famous for writing, let me just explain it in very basic language. Jonathan Edwards says there's a difference between having a spoonful of honey and me coming up to the, the front row and saying, have you ever tried this honey? It is wonderful. It is so good. The front row could see it. They could even desire to have it. But if they've never had honey, I have a good friend in, in Legrand who raises honeybees. And if you ever had a chance to t- try my friend Matt's honey, you'd be like, I- I've never had honey before. The store-bought honey? That's not honey. That's sugar water. This is honey. But Matt could tell you all about it. I could tell you all about it. But Kyle, if I gave you that honey and I put a little bit of honey in that spoon and I gave it to you and Kyle went, whoa, whoa. This is what Kyle would say. I'm a believer in Matt Pickens' honey. I like honey. That's what's happening in this passage. The disciples not only see that Jesus is gone, but they believe he has been raised from the dead. And verse 9 helps us to understand the importance of seeing and believing. It says this, For as of yet, and I hope you're with me when, when, you, when you see that this is astonishing to me. As of yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. What does it mean? I believe it means that their hearts in this moment as they entered the tomb and they saw that Jesus was gone is they must have had melancholy hearts. Once the truth of the resurrection gripped John's heart in particular, he must have experienced some kind of melancholy. Why? Because Jesus told the disciples, Over and over, and we've already seen this, that he would die, and on the third day, he would rise from the dead. Hold your finger in John chapter 20 and go back to John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, something very, very interesting takes place. John chapter 2, look with me at verse 18. So the Jews say to him, that is Jesus, what sign do you show for us in doing these things? And then, you know, Jesus, he loved to speak in cryptic language. I love that about Jesus. He spoke in parables. He sometimes was rather puzzling and cryptic. And here he does it once again. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews response is classic. The Jews then said, and this is the way I like to read it. It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you have raised it up in three days. It's like they're saying, you idiot. Are you serious? Like, I'm not an architect, but I know that if a building falls, right? It's going to take more than three days to raise it up. Verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And here's the key. When therefore he was raised from the dead... 
Think back to the tomb. His disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed. That's the same word for believed in chapter 20, verse 8, that the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. When John and Peter walked into the tomb and they saw that the tomb was empty, all of a sudden it all clicked. They remembered what Jesus had said. You destroy this temple in three days. I will rise again. And so there must have been a moment of melancholy. This is the way it would work for me. How could I be so dumb? He said it over and over and over. Like, I I study the Bible, John likely thought. We're basically Bible college students. We basically thought we had it all figured out. Jesus told us over and over. He told the scribes and the Pharisees over and over, destroy this temple and I will rise again. And now they're gazing with transfixed eyes at the empty tomb with the linen cloths all folded up nice, just like you'd find at a nice hotel. And they're just like, how could we be so Foolish, And so there must have been a moment of melancholy. But I believe the moment of melancholy only lasted for a moment. Because something overshadowed the, the melancholy hearts that they must have experienced. And I believe at this precise moment that their hearts marveled. When John, as verse 8 says, saw and believed, surely his marveling heart came to grips with some very important theological realities. The first of which was that he recognized that with Christ's resurrection, the scripture had been fulfilled. Once again, these guys studied the Bible. They studied with the greatest teacher in all of human history. His name is Yeshua, Jesus Christ. They knew that Psalm 1610 said, For you will not Abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. They realized at that precise moment, as they stood in the tomb of Jesus, who was now gone, who had been resurrected, that the Scripture had been fulfilled moments before. Secondly, their hearts marveled as they recognized the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul the Apostle talks about and glories in this power in the opening verses in his letter to the church at Rome. He says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so here the disciples, they stand in this empty tomb room, and they realize the scripture has been fulfilled, and they realize just how powerful Jesus really is. Finally, their hearts marvel as they recognize that Jesus Christ truly was And is the Son of God. My encouragement to you is when you you talk to your friends about the Lord Jesus Christ, that you not only talk about who He was at that moment in in redemptive history, over 2,000 years ago, that He was God and He was man. That He was the suffering servant. But you remember that He is right now God and man. That He intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. That He rules the universe for His glory. That all things are under His sovereign control. When you see and believe these great realities concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ, your heart can't help but be transformed. As the truth of the gospel takes residence in your heart, your life will begin to change. You will begin to be shaped by kingdom priorities, priorities that you didn't have five seconds ago. Your life will be utterly revolutionized. This morning as we close, I want to ask this question. 
And it's the question that I posed at the beginning is, what difference does the the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ make in your life? Well, because of the resurrection, and by the way, there are many things that we could share this morning. I'll offer three. Because of the resurrection, Jesus has cured the sin problem once and forever. And the implications of this are absolutely massive is because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, the power of sin is over. Romans chapter 6 talks about that. Also, the penalty of sin has been utterly erased. So the next time you sin, remember this, Jesus paid for that sin. The next time you ask yourself, how could Jesus forgive a sinner such as me? You just run back to the cross and thank Jesus for forgiving a sinner such as you. Why? Because the power of sin and the penalty of sin has been utterly erased. Jesus Christ has cured the sin problem. Amen? Amen. Secondly, Jesus Christ has conquered death once and for all. Jesus Christ has conquered death once and for all. Most of you, maybe not a few of the young people, but most of you have had one or more, and some of you have had... We're Spence. Spence just shared, is Spence not here? Spence shared with me a few weeks ago. It's like, he just keeps going to funerals. When you're as old as Spence, more and more, you keep going to funerals, right? And so Spence knows many friends, even in the last several months, who have died. When someone dies, remember this, that Jesus has conquered death. And that's why it's so vitally important that we tell our friends and our family members about the gospel. Because if a person dies outside of Christ, that person has no hope. That person has no hope. Tim Keller says it like this. His death, that is Jesus' death, means no death for us. His death means no death for us. His resurrection means our resurrection. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14 says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, though Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, namely, those who have died. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Why? Because Jesus has conquered death. Once and for all, Jesus went on to say, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And then Paul the Apostle, he he glories in this theme of Jesus conquering death. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when a loved one dies... And that loved one has expressed personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We grieve. We may even moan and wail and we struggle. But at the end of the day, we remember we will see our loved ones again. Those who are in Christ. Why? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has not only cured the sin problem, he has conquered death. But there's a third thing that we see has happened. Because of the resurrection, Jesus has crafted a future for all of the redeemed. I want you to think about that. Jesus Christ has crafted a future for all of the redeemed. A kingdom, an environment, an arena where relationships will be whole again. Would you raise your hand if you have a strained relationship? At least one. I don't know what the deal is with the rest of you. (laughs) Either just a few of us are messed up or the rest of you aren't telling the truth. We all have strained relationships. On the new earth, 
No strained relationships. Why? Jesus has crafted a future for his people where relationships are whole again, where we are reconciled to not only God, but reconciled to one, one another. And the resurrection not only offers hope for you and I in this life, it offers hope and assurance of life in the days to come. Something interesting happened to me a few days ago. I, I looked up some information, and I learned that one of my heroes, and I'm sure many of you admire this woman as well, but it was in 1967, 50 years ago. I still can't believe it. I'm, I'm just in shock. It was in 1967 that a 17-year-old young lady named Johnny Erickson stood on a dock on a family vacation and went to jump in the lake just for a great time and didn't realize there was that much water. And she broke her neck and she's been a quadriplegic for the last 50 years. I remember I was about 11 years old. My mom and dad took me to Tacoma to hear Johnny Erickson speak. That's been a long time ago. It blew me away to see this woman in a wheelchair who at that point had been teaching herself to put pencils and pens and, and painting brushes in her mouth like this and to sit at an easel and to paint these beautiful, beautiful pictures, pictures that I couldn't do with my own two hands. And most of you couldn't do with your own two hands. And she wrestled and she fought with God in those early days. She would lay in the hospital bed in, in misery, knowing that she would likely never walk again. And she battled with God and she wrestled with God and she struggled through it. But finally, God began to give her peace and he taught her a lesson that is probably the greatest lesson she's ever learned in her life. The lesson about the sovereignty of God, that he ordains everything for his purposes, for his glory and for the good of his people. If you've never read anything by Johnny Erickson Tata, she, has, she married a, a man by the name of Ken Tata several years ago. And as I was thinking through Johnny's story, I got to thinking, I think Ken's one of my heroes too. A man who would come alongside this woman and love her unconditionally. She is worthy to receive such a love. And they are just an absolutely amazing couple. Johnny has taught me many things over the years. And here's one thing that, that she writes in light of the fact that Jesus has crafted a future for all of the redeemed. She says this, I with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down will one day have a new body. Light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives someone who is a spinal cord injury like me? Close quote. You see, Johnny Erickson Tata gets it. She, she lives the reality of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ every day because the chances are very small, very small, that she will ever walk again in this life. But there is 100% chance. That's not even a correct way to put it. She will walk again. I've heard her say numerous times, and I'm going to take my wheelchair to heaven with me to remind me of the grace of God. And she says, my pastor, John MacArthur, has reminded me numerous times. That's not, bad th that's not good theology. You're not going to take your wheelchair to heaven with you. That'll be gone. But she gets it. She gets it. And I respect her so much for that. Here's what God is calling us to do. He's calling us to see and believe. Tim Keller says the truth of the resurrection is of supreme and eternal importance. It is the hinge upon which the story of the world pivots. And so we have B.C. before Christ and A.D. after death. It splits human history in two. That is the resurrection. So my question this morning, have you seen and have you believed? And here's the bottom line. It is entirely possible to go through life seeing, but never believing. 
It is impossible to even be raised in church. It is, it, is, it is possible that you can be raised in church and go to jam and go to junior high group and go to basics and be baptized and be catechized. It is entirely possible you could walk through Chris's excellent class on the Heidelberg Catechism. You can do all these things. You can come to morning service and, and take notes and learn and see, see, see. But it's entirely possible you can see and never believe. That is, it is possible to have eyes that are transfixed, but you still lack a transformed heart. The most humbling thing that you will ever do in life is to admit that you don't have the power to come to God on your terms. All the other world religions call people to do something for God's approval. AJ reminds me from time to time about the latter sermon I did. I'm scared of heights. It's the scariest sermon I've ever preached. And I got up there and preached half the sermon at the top of the ladder, right? Indicating that all the other world religions tell us work for God, do things for God, be approved by God, be received by God. The gospel tells us that Jesus earned your salvation for you on the cross through his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. He paved the way back to God, not a way back to God, the way back to God. And so, the gospel is exclusive, is an exclusive message. There is no other way to God. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so we, we don't get to God through Buddha. We don't get to God through Joseph Smith. We don't get to God through doing good works. We don't get to God through lighting candles or, or doing the sign of the cross or any of the rigmarole. We get to God by going through Jesus. And Jesus alone, his life, death, burial, and resurrection. The way of the cross is the only way to God. This is the dawning of the resurrection. Will you pray with me? Father, we remember the words in 1 Corinthians 15 that say, If Christ has not been raised, we are still in our sins. We thank you today for the great reality of the resurrection. We thank you for the hope that we enjoy. We thank you, Jesus, for fulfilling the scriptures. We thank you that you have conquered the power of sin. You've conquered the penalty of sin. That you've crafted a, an entirely uh, different future, an exciting future, one that is filled with hope for all of your people. And God, uh, today on a day when we likely have many guests at Christ Fellowship, the burden of my heart and the burden of, of all of us at Christ Fellowship is that if there's someone here who has never seen and believed, if there's someone here who has never uh, bent down to literally look in and examine the claims of Christ, but to also cherish those claims in their hearts, that today would be the day of salvation. Uh, we thank you, God, that it is not our works that makes us uh, acceptable to you. It is not our money that makes us acceptable to you. It's not our, our good looks that make us acceptable to you. It's not anything that we could do that make us acceptable in your sight. It is only the completed work of Christ that we must bank upon. His life, death, burial, and resurrection. And so today we, we glory in the gospel together. And as we sing this last song, we, we are so thankful that we are numbered among those who have hope. That we are numbered among those who've, who have the forgiveness of sins. Who recognize that you accept us all because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross and proved to us in the power of his resurrection. It's in his worthy name we pray. Amen.